socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. There are 60% of us who are allied with neither political party in the United States, and we all need a place to hear about politics too. Now, in our last episode, which you should listen to if you have not, Chris Brown of Columbia University explained how the rise in the movement to abolish slavery rose out of a debate over Great Britain's national identity in the wake of losing the Revolutionary War. And it was pointing out how slavery conflicted with how those in Britain and the United States viewed themselves that ultimately led to the end of an institution that had never been questioned in human history. And we are in a similar moment in history now where the national identity of the United States is being debated. And one of the flashpoints in this debate is the issue of immigration, especially as it pertains to people crossing our border with Mexico. So over the next few episodes, we're going to be digging into the reality on the ground at the southern border, what history tells us about the current debate, and how U.S. border policy lines up with larger trends across the globe. And to start this off, I spoke with Karina Braceda, executive director of New Wave Feminist Consistent Life Ethics Center and Shelter in Juarez, Mexico, which provides shelter, medical services, and food to migrant women with or expecting children who are seeking asylum in the United States. And for those of you who didn't hear my original conversation with Destiny Herndon de la Rosa of New Wave Feminist back in June of this year, I would strongly recommend giving it a listen. They are a pro-life feminist organization whose views on immigration turn out to be just as difficult to fit into a nice, tidy, little partisan pigeonhole as their views on abortion. And Karina is a native of El Paso with family on both sides of the border and has seen the border and attitudes towards those crossing into the United States change over the past decade. And as you listen to this, I want you to think about if and how American values are reflected in Karina's work and in U.S. border policy. This conversation did a lot to expand my thinking on the subject, which I will elaborate on more at the end. What brought us together was my conversation with Destiny back in June, and we were talking about New Wave Feminists. The topic at the time was uh, Roe v. Wade. And, and and the reason Destiny put me in touch with you is because you run a shelter for migrant women and children in Juarez. And can you talk a little bit about what kinds of services you're providing and, and who you're servicing down there? Sure. When I started working with migrants, I was seeing so many pregnant women come forward and just no services for them at, before, during, and after birth. And that's where the, the vision for the shelter came through, that we needed a space for women to choose life, to have an, an actual life choice, not because they didn't have any other choice, but because this was something that was good for them and that it was healthy. So we have the shelter area where women can spend their, their prenatal and their, their postpartum in a safe environment. 
And on the side, we have a clinic and this is going to be a women's health center so that uh, women can come down and they need uh, a crisis rape kit if they need prenatal services, if they need well woman checkups, they, they can come to that and have a space where they're, they're provided that. Are migrant women who are pregnant often seeking abortion out of desperation then? Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, the, it's missing from the conversation. Destiny always talks about systemic coercion. And I always put myself in their shoes. If I'm a woman in Juarez and I'm pregnant due to rape or through these very difficult circumstances, and I'm thinking about food and where I'm going to sleep next and where I'm going to probably give birth, and they offer me abortion, it's kind of like a bear caught in the, in the trap. Like, what, what would I choose? It's about giving people actual choices. For listeners who might be unfamiliar with the area, Karina, can you describe El Paso and, and Juarez? Sure. Well, when I bring people down, they're always surprised and shocked to see how close the border is to the actual city. You picture like a lot of desert in between or a lot of highway. But really, the only thing separating the city, it's like one restaurant on one side and one restaurant on the other is, is the hall and, and just the the port of entry. But if you were to look at it from like, our, you have mountains here and you look up there, you just see one continuous city. That was what I found most interesting about when we first spoke is, is that really it seems like, you know, Juarez and El Paso are really one city kind of split in two almost. So your family is on either side of the border, correct? Yeah, well, my for my mom's side, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, a lot of them live in Juarez, and my grandparents immigrated here in the 50s. So I have family holidays where sometimes like, well, we're going to have breakfast at grandma's house here, and then we'll just grab our car and then go visit our aunts and uncles on the other side. So it really is one city. Is that common too? Yes. Everybody kind of knows that they're, you know, we have friends on both sides, and it's just kind of this constant back and forth. I think that's where the term fronterizo comes from. It's this identity almost of, of living on both sides. You'd mentioned your, your grandmother was born in California, but then had her children in Mexico. And so she's an American citizen, but her children aren't. Yeah. My great grandmother, well, my grandmother was born in uh, California and then she came down to Juarez and she had all her kids in Mexico. So the Mexican citizens, so she was able to cross, but her children weren't. And then later on their children we're able to, you know, with visas and then their grandkids were born on the other side. So it's it's really on both sides. And I actually have a really good friend who his parents were born on the El Paso side. So they're citizens, but he was born in Juarez. And now that they're older, they can't travel as much. But since he's not a citizen, he can't visit them because they're on the El Paso side. Is there a moment you can remember back in your childhood or whenever when you first kind of understood what the border meant? I think that, you know, when I was a little kid, I, it just, you know, so I was like, oh, it's a, this is, we're going to go grocery shopping. It's just like quite a stay. I think mm -hmm. that it, it wasn't until later on that I saw the border policies that I started actually feeling it, like feeling the divide. When was that? And, and, and what were the policies at the time? Because obviously they've changed a lot over the years. You know, when we were younger, it was, you know, we kind of had a running joke. It was like, well, American citizen, because when we would cross over, you would just have to, you know, tell the, the border official, like, American citizen, and they kind of gauge your accent, I guess, or speak to you in English. But definitely in 2016, 17, 18, especially during the Obama years, actually, they really cracked down on your ability to cross. So instead of it being, like, 15, 20 minutes to cross, it turned into hours and hours. So it, it really became, like, this almost barrier on, on being with each other. Karina, that's actually what surprised me the most from our initial conversation 
was I think for most people who don't live near the border, we've heard about people crossing the Mexican border for decades now. And you just kind of assume there's always some strictly regulated border. From what I heard from you, it, it sounds like the level of enforcement on the border has gotten a lot more severe recently. So this is like not even in the last 10 years. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, this is very recent in how I think strict the border policy is. And I think that people forget that, especially this part of Texas and New Mexico, we're a farming community. This is a migrant farm community. And before there was this unspoken understanding that sometimes tourist visa holders would come in and they would work the fields. It was, it was, this was a, one of the main reasons of people going back and forth. So it wasn't very strictly upheld in that area for decades. Do you know why the Obama administration started ratcheting up restrictions? I think it would definitely have to do like you know, like a political move of, you know, just a reaction to 9-11. And it was just, you know, a response to that. Um, I couldn't say why that was, but I, I do know that the, you know, the detention centers and the cages really did start with them. And now how, how long have you been working with migrants? So I've been working with migrants for six years, but I've been working on the Juarez side going on 11 years. Um, I used to run a makeshift WIC program at one of our food banks for our Catholic community. And then during the 2018 crisis, uh, they asked for bilingual volunteers. And uh, that's when I, I started directly working with migrant women because I was seeing so many pregnant women and, and so many women that were going through very difficult situations. And I want to get I want to get back to that in a second. But one question I want to ask you as well is, you, so you've been there for about 11 years. You know, Obama administration started ratcheting up restrictions, I would imagine, sometime over the course of that decade. Over your 11 years volunteering in Juarez, has the makeup of the people seeking to cross the border changed? Because you mentioned there was a lot of fa farm workers crossing in from Mexico to work in, in Texas. Has that changed over the last 11 years? Yes, definitely. And I would like, like to add that my, my family comes from this farm working community. My, my dad worked the field. I worked the field before. And it mostly it was mostly men that would go come and pick. And there were some women that were that would come to very few. And I would even say this year, it's shocking to me how many children it is actually. For the, it was 2018, 2019, we started seeing a little bit more and more women. But it got to the point where even in statistics, because I work a lot with um, universities, and they called it the feminization of migration. Because instead of seeing men coming down, it was a lot of women. And I would say even these past couple months, I'm shocked at the number of children coming down. Why is this changing? There's a lot of not just like, I want to say like economic instability or the cartels and organized crime. It's definitely a lot of the climate insecurity. There's people are coming down because there's no water in certain places that are that they're coming down. There's no food. There's no even housing in, in this, you know, the result of natural disasters and all of that. Um, we are seeing a lot of children come down like unaccompanied minors. And that means they, they came with nobody. And speaking with them and being with these kids, I realized that they're children that won't have any parents. So they're coming down as like this last ditch attempt to to find a safe spot. Sounds then like, again, to, to recap everything we've talked about, you know, sounds like up until let's call it, let's just say 10 years ago or so, the people who were primarily crossing the border were from Mexico looking to work on the U.S. side of the border, you know, potentially with a work visa, but potentially just with a tourist visa or something like that. And it sounds like now what you have is you quite literally have people coming north because they lack shelter, they lack water, they lack basic necessities. Yeah, and I would like to explain a little bit. We used to have a program here on the border called the Bracero Program. It's like the strong arm. 
and it was U.S. government allowed work visas for these specific jobs. And migration used to be that you came for a couple of months during the you know the peak uh, farming season, and then people will go back to to Mexico. But what's happening now because there's no longer that ability, people are staying instead of coming here for the for a time amounted to 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 pick up and you know reestablish themselves. They can't really go back because there is no doorway for them to be able to do that. It sounds like what was going on before is people would come north, they would work, and then they'd go back because they knew they could just as easily cross the border again. It sounds like now as things have gotten tighter, they typically are looking to cross the border and then stay. Definitely. And for me, I feel like it's causing a stagnation in, in the communities. I know there's some people, for because I work with migrants in a general sense, they're asylum seekers that are here because their, their life is in danger and children and women that, that need that safety and security. But there is also those situations where, where people are coming down because of climate change or different reasons. And instead of like, giving the, I need one or two years to, to be safe, it's, uh, there's no way of them to, to fix that situation. And yes, yeah, so they're, they're coming to Juarez then, and they're attempting to cross the border. What happens when they first come in contact with U.S. officials? So actually yesterday I had a really interesting encounter with, because we were doing intake at one of the El Paso side shelters. It was some of the people I had already released. And she started saying that like, oh, we're aiding and abetting and they're, you know, these illegal immigrants. Um, and I don't know how to explain to people that these people are not illegal. When they come down, they have a legal right to ask for asylum. They, they come in contact with the CBP officials or people that are working on the border and they're taken in for their interview. And from there, they're giving paperwork and they're giving a number, they're getting an identification, and then they're released to go to very specifically where they, where they were, um, they put their sponsor number in or the people that are going to receive them. So they are, they're not just like, you know, coming in and going anywhere. They, they have to go and follow up with their court date. So that's what's happening. They, they say like, oh, we just have open borders right now. No, there, there's a whole process of people coming down there, registered, they're, they're, they're vetted, like people are being vetted. You had, you had mentioned when we first spoke, El Paso is 80% Hispanic, and there seems to be a little contention between the native Hispanic community and those who are crossing the border. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think it's just a very human thing of, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots, and it's happened historically with every migrant community, with the Irish, with, with the Germans, with any migrant community coming down or, or moving. I think it's us, this almost human reaction to see this other coming down and, and, and be afraid of what that, that would imply for the communities. That was another thing I found very interesting because I think a lot of times, again, when we're talking like people who just aren't tied in with the community, they, they just assume that, you know, they, everybody operates almost as, as an ethnic monolith, but it sounds like there's, there's class in there. Getting back to some of the restrictions as well, you know, what have you seen in terms of changes at the border changes in terms of the border patrol? Is it the laws that are changing? Is it agencies and how they're operating that are changing? Like what's what's different about it now than maybe, you know, 2015 or, or 2010? For the actual agencies, I think that the one thing that has changed is that they were given a much larger budget and that budget went towards the militarization of their staff and it, it didn't go towards the facilities, it didn't go towards aid for the people or, or to, to for the infrastructure. It, it definitely went directly towards, um, you know, militarized vehicles and robot dogs. And it, just, it was just this insane budget that was allocated to that. So I do see my border very much militarized. You can feel like it, it looks like a, I had a, some friends come down from 
Israel, and they said that it reminded them so much of Palestine and how many vehicles you see here roaming around all the time. Um, What I would say is that I don't think that the policies have uh, changed that much. And I always point out that, you know, I feel like detention centers are in the same condition as they were during Trump. I feel like they're not talking about it as much anymore because this is a Democratic president and it's kind of like swept under the rug. But I feel like it's the the conditions or the people that we're serving is is pretty much the same. What has changed is the political climate and it's just how the migrants are viewed or how the issue is viewed. And people are much more radicalized in this area and much more vocal about it. And it's very much divided. So instead of it being like, oh, I don't agree with you on immigration, but we can work in this area, we can come to an agreement. It's very much like two camps or two two tribes in that area. Yeah. one. I mean, one of the stories you shared with me was about two vigilantes effectively who shot, was it two or three migrants at the border? It was two, two migrants. And I think it's point out that these people were people that worked within the ICE detention centers and just the the culture that we have or that the view that we have of migrants does eventually make extremists of people. One thing I wanted to get back to is you know, you'd also mentioned that a lot of money has been diverted towards militarization. Where could that money have gone or where could they spend that money where it would have greater effect? Oh, I'm going to get maybe some flack from my local immigrant activist, but I feel like that resource should have been to hire more people, more human beings. There's some articles that came out where a lot of robot dogs were hired in drones and these extreme vehicles. And for me at the border, if we had more more people working there, we wouldn't have people that maybe were as pushed to the limit or maybe those resources go to more training capacitation for them or uh, mental health services for the officers at the border. That that would for me would have been a, a much better use of the money. What about immigration courts as well? Because one of the things I've heard is that they've they're severely backlogged. Yeah, I think that that would be a huge step towards immigration reform because the judges that we have in these court systems isn't uh, the, the court system that we have typically with, you know, judge and jury. It's, it's, there's no oversight. I think oversight into those courts would be a huge difference for justice on both sides. Mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, touching on the subject that we have for-profit detention centers. So there's incentive to monetarily to have people in, in detention centers of children and, and, and the not just within our, our own facilities, but there is, you know, sometimes spaces in our prison are contracted off to detain people. And I think people should start questioning that. We, we have a for-profit immigration system. Mm. Now, you know, we, we've talked a lot about enforcement. We've talked a lot about the, 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 the U.S. side. On the opposite side of the border, you have women, you have children who are coming to the U.S. border. They're getting denied. They're getting sent back. What is life in Juarez like for them? For a single mom, it's, you know, Mexico, you know, the culture is very different. There's no services for women to have a job and, and have daycare. And, and then there's very few limited options for women to have a stable job, especially in the city that's, you know, this epicenter of femicide. And it's one of the most dangerous cities in the world. And to have, you know, I think of myself as a mother and think, well, what would I do in that situation? If I was in Juarez, I didn't have a place to stay and I had my three crits, I absolutely would make the choice to um, present myself. And if that didn't work out, I would figure out any way to get my kids out of the situation, even if that meant sending them ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of the, the women who come from, who come from other countries, so come from Guatemala, come from El Salvador and whatnot, they're often being targeted in, in Juarez as well, correct? 
Yeah, definitely. Especially the Guatemalan women, they have a very specific, they have indigenous features. They look very different from the women and they're, they're, they're short, they're small. And um, for me, they're, they're some of the most rape cases that I get or most trafficking cases. And if when I see these women come out of those situations and, uh, you know, their children witness all of this, I can completely understand why would they, they would make that choice of sometimes sending their kids over if that meant safety for them. I guess if you could send a message to the folks who aren't directly connected with the border or who are only getting their information via cable news, for example, like what would be your message to them? Where do you think we need the most help? Where do we need to make the most changes? I would say for the people that are leaning onto the right side of things and, and more conservative, I understand that we might not come to an agreement on what a border policy should be. But I think we can all agree that uh, America is about women and children and taking care of the most vulnerable. And I think that there is a leeway in that area to to accept the people that are, are definitely in need. And for yeah. the left side, I think I would ask them to address um, the policies that they that they ask for that are, you know, utopian and unattainable so that nobody gets helped. I think that I need to question that as well. Yeah. What do you think some of those utopian policies are? For example, I, I don't believe in open borders. I think that when you ask for that, it means that it radicalizes other people so that nobody gets helped. And for me, my, my focus is women and children, and I'm Catholic. It's preferential treatment for the poor. So I think that this utopian ideal of everybody come and go makes it so that nobody nobody is helped. I think when we talk about border policy, it's specifically to our border with Mexico, we really only look at it in two lenses. And one is economic and one is, let's call it military, where in order for national security, we need to have a secure border. There's a third facet that I think is missing from a lot of our conversations and probably missing from a lot of the funding sources as well, which is this humanitarian problem. And from everything you've told me, it sounds like a lot of what we're seeing are people either fleeing economic stability, political instability, as you saw in Haiti, but also environmental instability. So just the, the effects of climate change. And I don't see these problems getting any better in the, the coming 20 years. And so I think as Americans, you getting back to the issue of American values and, and kind of touching on something we talked about in the last episode, which is this issue of national identity. I think as a country, we really have to decide is our national identity one that greets a humanitarian crisis with a military solution or are we one that will invest in alleviating some of the worst effects of that and i and i have to imagine and you tell me if i'm wrong here karina but i have to imagine if the us were to allocate funding for housing and and taking care of some of these migrants on either side of the border on the Juarez side or on the El Paso side it sounds like that would do more in terms of of addressing at least part of the issue than just putting up a barbed wire fence and thinking people are content to to starve on the other side no 100% and even if you know removing funds from the conversation if the viewpoint or the way we address it was completely different from the you know, point at the militarization if we had a humanitarian viewpoint I think even the way we address it socially in our interactions with nonprofits or with other governments, the communication that would come from that, there would be a completely different structure in how the, even the shelters were set up or how people would come down. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like treating them as 
people in need instead of like a, a wave of invaders, which I think is the way it's portrayed in a lot of, especially like right-wing media. You'd mentioned that the policies were relatively the same under Obama and under Biden as they were under Trump. Do you think, is Trump more guilty of maybe inflaming the rhetoric than he is in changing policies at all? Because it, it sounds like things haven't gotten any better under Biden. And it also sounds like the escalation and the the increased militarization of the border were happening under Obama's watch and Trump kind of just continued it. I think that all three, like Obama, Trump and Biden are all guilty of being anti-immigrant in different capacities. I think that, you know, Trump definitely in installed certain policies towards families that, you know, were, were unique to him and, and particularly cruel. But there is more deportations under Biden, specifically to like the Haitian community and, and people that will be deported to their certain death. So I think that the Trump brought the, the issue to the forefront, we got people talking about it. But I do feel like there is some sort of hush hush about the Biden administration because he that was what he he campaigned under that he was going to fix immigration, but he's coming to the end of his term and, and nothing has been done. What do you say to the argument that there has to be some fortification at the border because we have drugs and we have violent criminals crossing? Like, what's the truth to that, and what's what's your response? I would say I agree. We need to have you know common sense immigration policies. Um, but I feel like the focus should be in, in a humanize, humanizing other human beings and this model that, that reflects our American values. And that means that we have, you know, um, justice, like, in, and I think it would be a just system, because right now we don't have a just system either for ourselves or for the migrants. It, it, it is putting both of us in a situation where we're both hurt. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. For additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day, you can sign up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. And for more information on New Wave Feminist Shelter in Juarez and how you can support it, visit newwavefeminists.com. There's a link in the show description, but it is spelled just as it sounds. Now, as I listened to this episode again, it became clear to me why the situation at the border seems to only get worse. Because as Karina mentioned, it was Obama who first started the detention centers that gained notoriety during Trump's time in office. And while Trump certainly added an element of cruelty to our border policy, he took the blame for some practices that were in place when he took office. Now, it's also noteworthy that these centers aren't making headlines now that Biden is in office, despite the fact they're still in operation. And the left likes to call out the cruelty of the right as much as the right likes to call out the hypocrisy of the left. And while they're both technically right, Neither of them seem all that concerned with fixing the problem. And as I mentioned during the episode, it seems that the big issue is that we're approaching a humanitarian problem with a military solution. And this gets to the issue of America's national identity, because much of the modern sense of what it means to be American was made in our response to World War II, where our military involvement ultimately tipped the scales against fascist imperialism in Europe and Asia and our role as a counterweight to the Soviet Union during the Cold War reinforced this idea. 
Now, as climate change disrupts economies and makes part of the world unlivable, more and more people will make their way to wealthier countries in Europe and North America out of basic survival. And it can't be understated that the people most affected by climate change have benefited the least from the system that created that problem or that the countries they're migrating to have benefited the most. And I think we need to ask ourselves if we're going to run the same military playbook over again. We need to ask ourselves if it's more American to lead the world in militarizing our borders and keeping those seeking refuge out, or whether we need to put the same thought and resources and force behind helping alleviate the global impact of climate change, whether that means providing aid abroad or finding a way to better absorb climate refugees at home. And there are no shortage of military contractors and private prison providers who are willing to support the first option. And I think that option is going to come at a great expense, both in terms of budget, as well as who we are as a people. I would love your take on this. So email me at heydan, that is H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com and share your thoughts. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, Y-D-H-T-Y's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. Y-D-H-T-Y is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye. Uh,